We're going to conclude our reading of uh, chapter 9, verses 32 through 38. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is God's word. Please be seated. In thinking about the greatest need of the church today, New Testament scholar Don Carson, in his classic book on the prayers of Paul, observed that the one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. Well, it was a number of years ago, I think almost four decades now, that theologian J.I. Packer wrote the book Knowing God, a classic on that very thing. His effort really is an endeavor to help the church know God better. And in that book, he declared that the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name The nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Knowing God. Knowing God better. The greatest need of the church at large. The greatest need of this church, college church, today. And the greatest need of Nehemiah's church in his day. Knowing God not in some cursory, informative way, but knowing God in a, in a transformative way, knowing Him in a way that brings changed lives and changed direction and changed purpose, knowing God in a way that brings restoration and refreshment and renewal. That's the greatest need of God's remnant people for Nehemiah and for us. Knowing God this way doesn't always come easy, does it? Even as followers of Christ, we may genuinely struggle with knowing and loving God. It it has been true throughout the history of God's people, and it may be true even for you this day. 
It was true for Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, who, who in his book called Confessions, in one of his prayers, says this, I was astonished that although I now loved you, I did not persist in enjoyment of my God. Your beauty drew me to you, but soon I was dragged away from you by my own weight, and in dismay I plunged again into the things of this world, as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fair, but was not able to eat it. See, Augustine knew the reality of life in a broken world. He knew the power of the things of this world to pull one away from God. He knew his sin, and he knew his need to be refreshed and renewed and restored in relationship with God. And he understood that this need to know God, to be renewed in God, lies at the heart of a genuine relationship with God. This chapter, Nehemiah 9, is all about that very thing. It shows us the nature of spiritual renewal and, and in fact, shows us three essential elements that lead us to a restored relationship with God. And they're simply this, repentance, remembrance, and response. This passage begins with a story of repentance. In these first five verses, they show us that that renewal of the Spirit must begin with repentance. And, and repentance must be humble in its posture, contrite in spirit, and confessing before God one's sin. That's, that's the account given to us. We're told on the 24th day, God's people assembled with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. These were symbols of mourning and and remorse and regret for wrongdoing. And they spoke of their genuine contrition and remorse for their sins against a holy and loving God. You see, their actions demonstrate their humility of heart. Humility rather than pride. Meekness rather than obstinance. Lowliness rather than presumptuous. See, the other mark we see as they come before God was their confession. Their confession was genuine. They confessed their sins and even the iniquities of their fathers. And they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. And then they confessed and worshiped God for another quarter of the day. That makes a six-hour service, if, in case you're counting. We're not going to do that today. That was the nature they came to God with with a contrite spirit and confession. And that that repentance is what led them into worship and blessing and exalting God and His name for who He was. That's the posture by which they approach God. It's the beginning part of genuine renewal. And there are a couple of things that are striking about their repentance in this passage. The first is when it happens. It happens three full weeks after Nehemiah chapter 8, that beautiful word-centered worship service that we heard about 
last week. And three weeks go by, and it's, it's interesting. They don't, they don't leave church that morning and say, that was a great sermon, and then go about their business the rest of the week. No, what, what happens is they, they begin to allow the word to have its way with them and, and to have an effect upon their minds and their hearts and to, to work on them and move them and change them. That's what's happening in that three-week period. Uh, we love summer in our house, and one of the reasons I love it is it gives me a chance to grill outside and have a little fun and, uh, and make a nice meal on occasion. And one of the things we love in our house is um, grilled marinated flank steak. I don't know if you've ever had it, but it's delicious. And uh, if you know anything about flank steak, you know it's a little tough. And so the best way to grill it is to to put it in a marinade, a little, uh, little uh, balsamic vinegar, a little extra virgin olive oil, a little garlic, a little onion, fresh herbs, a little Chianti maybe, and, and you let it sit. And you let it sit for 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, and, and you keep it marinating for that time. And then, then you take it out and you set it on a perfectly hot grill, cook it to perfection, and it's delectable. It's, it's, it's delicious, and its flavors come out. And, and what happened in the time that it was sitting is that marinade began to have its effect on the steak. And, and those parts that were tough are now tender and soft. And that steak is attractive and appealing and tasty to those who will partake of it. You see, the Word of God is like that, and that's what's going on in this passage, is, is they let it have its effect on them, and, and it takes those tough parts of our hearts and our souls, and it begins to tenderize them and change them and make our lives attractive and tasty and appealing to those around us. That's how the Word does its work. That's what's happening here, and it's evident in how they come to God now repentantly. The second thing that's striking about their repentance is what is absent, particularly as we're given this account of of God's people throughout history and their obstinance so often. What we don't see now are any excuses, no minimizing sin, no rationalizing or downplaying what they've done. Instead, their repentance is genuine They're not making excuses. They're not hiding from what they've done. They're acknowledging it. They're not not making a case before God for all the good things about them. Instead, they they are recognizing the reality of their sin and depending on God. They don't defend what they've done or blame others. Friends, that's a beautiful picture of repentance not, not excusing, not hiding, not defending, not shifting blame. Instead, what we see is their confession is genuine and authentic, acknowledging their sin, seeing it for what it really is, an offense to a holy, perfect, loving God. That's genuine confession, and it's part of genuine repentance. We would be well served to learn from from them, from Nehemiah's people at this point. Now, after repentance comes 
remembrance. And that's verses 6 to 31. It's really an unfolding of redemptive history and all its grandeur and who God is and what he has been doing through the course of time. And, and that, that act of remembering continues the work of renewal in God's people. And I would contend remembering is, is actually very important. Remembering who God is and what he's done, it's important for the life of the one who follows Christ even today. And it's, it's helpful to see that just the breakdown of this passage, the first the first six verses, first five verses dealing with repentance, but now the remembering is the bulk of the passage. I, I think that's helpful for us as a pattern it, just to see that proportion, particularly if you tend to be introspective. And maybe you focus more on your sin than on remembering who God is and what he has done. This, this passage and, and its proportion is instructive for us that way. And there's wisdom of old that says, for, for every look you take at yourself, at your own sin or circumstances, take ten looks to Christ. I think that's right. We, we don't focus simply on ourselves, but we focus on who God is and what he has done. That's the pattern that seems to be laid out here of just putting the focus in the right place. And as, as redemptive history unfolds, this account of it, we see this oscillating, this going back and forth between the sinful, rebellious disobedience of God's people and the astounding love and mercy and grace of their covenant-keeping God. We can't miss that contrast because it, it shows us something beautiful about who God is. Listen to how this passage describes God's people. They acted arrogantly, presumptuously. They stiffened their necks and did not obey and sought to return to their slavery, and they rebelled against their God. They killed the prophets that he sent and did evil and sinned against his rules and acted wickedly and turned a stubborn shoulder. They have not followed his commandments. They have not served him. They would not give ear to him. And they were not mindful of of the wonders you performed, verse 17. You know what that means? It means they forgot. They forgot, and it was at the heart of their troubles. They weren't remembering, though they are now. But through the course of history, they were not mindful of the wonders that God had performed. Friends, this is why remembering is essential to the work of inward renewal and restoration of a relationship with God. Because remembering breeds gratitude, doesn't it? It, it gives us everything to be thankful for as we keep our focus in the right place on who God is and what he has done. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, are you mindful of the wonders God has performed for his people throughout the course of history and for you in particular. Do you know God that way? Do you know his wondrous works, his saving works, his gracious works, his loving works? If not, let me point them to you right here in this passage. 
We're told much about who God is, that he is Lord. You alone are Lord, that he is the creator God, the sustainer God, the covenant-keeping God, the promise-keeping God with his people. That he's a merciful God who saw the affliction of his people and he answered their cry and he acted on their behalf. That this God is a mighty God who divided the Red Sea and led your people by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That this God is a God who speaks and gives good rules and laws for the good of his people. He is the provider God who gave bread from heaven and water from a rock and gave his spirit to instruct his people and multiplied their children and brought them into the promised land and delivered them according to his mercies. And he bore with them and he warned them and he even disciplined them out of love. For he is the faithful God, and he did not forsake his people. See, against the backdrop of the disobedience of God's people, we see the brilliant, radiant grace and mercy of God. His steadfast love goes further than our sinfulness. We need to always remember that. That his faithfulness is far greater than our faithlessness. And remembering who God is and what he has done, you see the effect it has here? It begins to rekindle religious affections. That is, it awakens a love for God. That's that's what's happening in this passage. It it shows us, we see it as as the passage unfolds. And perhaps the greatest summary that we have of who God is in this passage is found in verse 17. They say, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. That same idea is repeated again at the end of this this part of the passage in verse 31. No, God's people were stubborn and sinful, it says, nevertheless, nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end to them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I want you to see that clearly. When when God seems distant and far away, when sin feels overwhelming, when our affections for God have waned, And restoration is needed. It is good to keep that one word on the tip of your tongue. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you are gracious and merciful, God. But God, my my sin is great. Nevertheless, God, I've turned from you. I've not been dependent upon you. I've disobeyed you. Nevertheless, God is gracious and merciful, when, when we understand that, when we get the depth of God's grace and mercy and who he is, even amidst our failings and our shortcomings, we will be moved by the mercy of God to respond rightly to his call and his commands of his word for us. That's, that's how the dynamic works. And that leads us to this third essential element of genuine spiritual renewal. It's simply this. It's a response 
It's a right response in verses 32 through 38. The people have repented. They're, they're, they're remembering who God is and what he has done for them. And now they respond. And they respond with a wholehearted commitment to bind themselves to their God. That's how they respond. Verse 38. To, to make a covenant with him. To set him above all else. To follow him wherever he leads. That genuine commitment. And that commitment is wholly dependent upon who God is. Verse 32. See, they're dependent upon the character of God. Even as they make that commitment, they appeal to God's covenant, steadfast, loyal love. His hesed. That's an important word in Nehemiah. It shows up five times, always at key points. And it's interesting, though, Nehemiah and Ezra go very closely together. That word doesn't show up at all in Ezra. But in five times in Nehemiah, at the very beginning of this book, verse 5, Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then all the way to the end, chapter 13, verse 22, remember me, remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then right here in chapter 9, twice, verse 17 and verse 32, we see it again. It's, it's the culminating work of God and the, the testimony to who he is as a God of mercy and grace and steadfast love. And Nehemiah, if you will, is God's man of mercy for the hour to God's people when they are in need of being rebuilt and restored. That's no small matter. And the call to obedience, which is very much a part of this book as well, and a call to the faith, be faithful to the Word of God and the commands and directives of God is very much a part of genuine renewal. It's not to be missed at all. But it always starts with a deep understanding of the covenant love of God for his children. Hesed. Unbending, unbreaking, unyielding, unrelenting love of God. His pursuing love that will not let you go. That kind of love is central to renewal. I like how author Paul Miller in his book, The Loving Life, talks about God's steadfast love. He says that it combines commitment and sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love. Think of that. Love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response. So if the object of your love snaps at you, you still love that person. Hesed, he says, is a stubborn love. Ever think of God's love that way? It's a stubborn love. I think that's right. 
I, I know of another pastor who, who says that, that God's hesed is his mercy is God's ministry to the miserable. It's another way to say it. His mercy is God's ministry to the miserable. It is both intensely personal and immensely practical. For when I am treated unfairly, he says, God's mercy relieves my bitterness. Have you ever known bitterness? That's the solution. When I grieve over loss, it relieves my pain and anger and denial. When I deal with being sinful, it relieves my guilt. That's its importance. And that's how it works in the life of the believer. And that's precisely what's happening here in Nehemiah 9. And it's where the response of commitment comes from. Because God's steadfast love and mercy is having its way with them. And instead of being angry with God, they're they're contrite and broken before him and dependent upon him. And not, not only do they have this right understanding of God's mercy and his character, but they also have a right understanding of reality. That comes out in these last seven verses. They say, we've acted wickedly. We've not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and warnings. And as a result, they say, behold, we are slaves this day. Twice, we are slaves. Behold. See, our sin and our rebellion doesn't come without consequences. God's forgiveness is there for us, but it doesn't necessarily remove the consequences. And God's people understand that and are experiencing that even here at the end of this glorious account of who God is. See, the the result of rebelling against God's ways, which is what God's people did, is that they were put in slavery, bondage, captivity. They, They were not now free to experience life as God designed them and created them rightly under his rule with rich blessing. Instead, they understand captivity of sin. Do you know that? I know that in my life. If I pursue a sinful decision or behavior, I know how it it enslaves me. And now I need to come back to Christ and the reality of God's work and obedience to his word to be freed from that. That's what happens here. That right dependence on God, right understanding of reality, honestly, it leads to a right response of commitment And the passage sums up this way. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. That's the commitment. It's a covenant. And in closing, let me just say one thing about this covenant. It unfolds in the next chapter, in chapter 10. We we learn the details of it and really the, the, the conditions of it. And, and if we take a look at the span of scriptures, we, we understand that the covenant God makes with his people and his people make with God, that, that it comes with terms and conditions and resultant curses and blessings. That's how it's put together. We see it again and again as it's given to us throughout 
throughout God's word, that's not necessarily good news. Because there is no human being who has ever fulfilled the terms and the conditions of the covenant of God except one. And that one would come 400 years later. And he is the hero of the covenant. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one ever to fulfill all the terms and conditions of the covenant and thus experience all the blessings of the covenant and offer those blessings to his children who turn to him repentantly and believe and trust him for life and salvation. And when Christ hung on the cross at Calvary, he took all the curses of the covenant upon himself so that you would not have to. That's the reality of the gospel and who God is. To know him this way is to bring genuine renewal and life and restoration. And it is what God desires for his people. Which is why we're given Nehemiah 9 in our Bibles. Friends, I I hope you grasp that anew this day. So that you might know God better. Then you might turn to him in repentance and faith and be renewed. Let us pray. Father, we we look to a chapter like this and our our minds are just uh, in awe of who you are. We marvel, Lord, at your steadfast love that you do not give up on your children, on your people, and you are calling sinners unto yourself even this day to see you, Christ, and to trust in you as, as, the, as the hero of the Scriptures. Father, may, be it, may it be so for us as a people that, that we would know you and love you more. May we love Jesus with our full affections. May it be the fruit of your word at work in us even this day and this week and the next week and the week after. Such that we would proclaim your saving mercies to a dying world. And that you would be given all glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.